Joe presents TKO together with 32 Red. Welcome to round 16 of TKO on Joe together with 32 Red. We're a podcast and YouTube show and we'll be with you every Thursday. Now, before we jet off to New York next week, we've stopped in the sunshine state of Hull. I know what you're thinking. Why are we so good to you? The reason is that Carl the Jackal Frampton is back in camp 12 weeks from now, roughly speaking. He'll be back in the ring. Remember, he unsuccessfully challenged for Josh Warrington's IBF featherweight title on the 22nd of December. Briefly had a flirtation with retirement, decided there was more in the tank and he's back to it. Now, over the next few weeks, sporadically, we'll be dropping in and out of his camp, giving you the inside track on his progress, how he's feeling ahead of his ring return. He's here at the TC Academy, Tommy Coyle's gym in Hull, with the likes of Jack Catterall, uh, Tommy Coyle himself, and of course, his trainer, Jamie Moore. So, Carl Frampton, day three of his new training camp. Let's go and see how he's getting on. So, Carl's in the ring at the moment. You might be able to hear the crack of the pads in the background. He's just doing a little warm-up with Jamie Moore on the pads. We've got Sean McGoldrick in the gym as well. He was on the GB Amateur squad at 56 kilos for a couple of years, just over there in the grey top. He's now, I think, 5 or 6 and 0 as a pro. He's just sat down next to Jack Catterall, 140-pound top prospect. He's, I believe, number one in WBO uh, and is now Maurice Hooker's, or soon to be Maurice Hooker's, mandatory. So he's championing it a bit for a world title shot, certainly in the next six to eight months. Uh, Martin Murray, back in the gym with Jamie three days ago as well. He's kind of come out of that, what he thought was retirement, not too long ago. So a burgeoning stable for Jamie Moore, who had contemplated jumping out of the game as a trainer himself only two years ago. But he's going to be a busy man in the coming months. We'll sit down with Carl uh, a little bit later on, have a chat with him, have a chat with Jamie about what their expectations are for the camp, how Carl's feeling physically. Won't be a heavy load today. This will kind of be one of the lighter sessions that you'll see two or three weeks' time when we come back and revisit him. The intensity will have gone up, the sessions would have changed. Hopefully at some point we'll get some sparring on tape. Probably not today, though. I've got to be honest, it's quite weird seeing him back in the ring I almost forgot he was a boxer because we've done so many of these shows and he's been inactive all the while we've been doing the podcast it's quite exciting to be doing the shows now that he's actually back in camp hopefully we'll also go stateside with him in a few weeks time when he does box and we'll be able to get the inside track maybe some dressing room access who knows we'll get as much as we we physically can when we're on the road with him in the United States for the next fight and if he's successful in that hopefully a world title shot against potentially Oscar Valdez Still got it. Still got it. So while Carl's hitting pads uh, in the ring, I'm just going to grab a quick word with Sean McGold, who was on the GB boxing setup for how many years were you there for? Um, I was there for six years, I think. So. Yeah. Um, so you were 56 kilos on the, the bantamweight in the setup. So you've now turned over Jamie um, as well. And being a bantamweight, I'm guessing you've done a fair bit of sparring with Carl. No, no, no. I haven't sparred Carl at all yet. He, um, this is his first camp that I've been in the same time as him. So, um, so yeah, I sparred. Spied Cal years and years ago when I was still on the GB squad and stuff. So, um, but yeah, nothing yet. But that's quite exciting to know that I guess in the next few weeks you'll you'll hopefully get a few rounds in with him as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, obviously he's world class, like you know, and um, that'd be brilliant experience for me and um, to help me and to develop me. It'd be can't get no better than that. Mm. 
excellent grounding for you on GB. And at the time, Kez Ashfak was there as well, and you came in as a kind of youngster through, through the system. How have you found adjusting to the pro game so far? It's different. Um, in, in terms of boxing, boxing just boxing. But when you go to tournament boxing, you've got sort of, you know, if you scrape through your first fight, you know, just win. Then you've got your second fight to improve, your third fight to improve, and then hopefully you're in the final and, you know, you're boxing at your best by then. But, um, in the pro, you haven't got that time. You need to be on the ball straight from the, you know, there's no second chance, there's no tomorrow or there's no next week for another tournament, you know. So um, it's all the focus on one fight rather than the focus on, if it, you know, a full week of boxing, like, you know. I don't know about you, but I don't, and I'm not sure why I was surprised how sharp Carl looks on the pads, but it does look already, looks really good, I think. <laughs> it looks like he hasn't been out the ring, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy, like, you know, but that's, that's just... Testament to Cal, he's obviously a true professional. You know, he's um, obviously stayed in the gym and stayed fit, and um, that's why, obviously, he's able to still be this sharp. And, and that's a lesson for, obviously, me, like, you know, is, is to obviously keep myself in shape and obviously keep myself sharp, like, you know, in between fights and stuff, you know, because it's easy if you haven't got a date to lose focus. But as you can see, Cal obviously hasn't lost focus and he's still very sharp. So, so you know, so it, that's a good example for, you know, for the likes of me. Good man. Well, I'm sure we'll be re- relying on your services plenty over the next few weeks. So, uh, good luck with it, mate. Cheers for speaking to you. Thank you. Cheers, mate. So, another man that you will recognise uh, from Jamie Moore's camp is the man sat to my right, Jack Catterall, top uh, 140-pound contender. You are um, WBO number one, waiting for the call to fight Maurice Hooker, presumably. Yeah, we've uh, we've been number one for a while now. So, like I said, we're just waiting for for the call and uh, we're working already so we'll be ready once we do get the call. Quite a cool position to be in as well. That's, that's unprofessional, Carl. That's unprofessional. <laughs> if you knew how much these cost, in fact, he probably would. He probably would do it the amount he's getting paid. <laughs> yeah, not the iPhone. This is the sort of inside track you get. <laughs> You've turned a professional interview into a I fucking shambles. The damage is done. Just said he's had, a, he's had an accident. <laughs> right. Where were we? <laughs> Look like I've done a bit of work, man. Yeah, yeah. It's quite good. Right, so, uh, Maurice Hooker, uh, when do you think you'll get the call? Any idea? I'm not too sure. I do believe he's, uh, he might have another voluntary defence in July. Uh, if that's the case, we'll, we'll get out in the summertime and hopefully it'll be done before the year's out. What did you think of um, Josh Taylor's performance to secure the IBF at 140? And, and, of course, if you were to beat Hooker and he were to go and win the Super Series, you could have a three-belt unification on UK soil. That's an exciting prospect, isn't it? Yeah, definitely down the line. That's a massive fight. Uh, fought he boxed well at the weekend. Stuck to his boxing. He got involved sometimes a little bit too much, probably. But mm. good performance. Thought that Branovich would learn to be hit a lot. Well, that would be a different case if, if we boxed. But ultimately, he's on his path. I'm chasing the WBO world title. But like you just said down the line, uh, it's a major UK fight. It's interesting that you mentioned about him getting hit too much, but a lot of people, and I, I have to include myself in this, feel as if he was boxing a little bit for the crowd as well as for the judges, so boxing when he wanted to, but actually getting involved a little bit more because he wanted to kind of make it a show. Did you get that impression? Yeah, probably. I mean, he has uh, great support in Scotland, and when the crowd's behind that, I could probably get a little bit carried away, but overall a good fight. So talk to me about this camp then. Good to have Carl back in, in the gym with the boys who missed him. <laughs> I don't know after that episode, but yeah, no. Uh, it's, it's been really good uh, up here today, uh, Tommy Coyle's gym. Uh, Tommy's got a big fight next weekend, so 
everyone gets on in the gym. It's been uh, it's been really good. It's nice to have them all back over now. Everyone preparing for big fights the next couple of months. Martin Murray back as well. Rocky Fielding, they're going to be boxing on the, the same night, 12th of July, I want to say. Something I think like that. so, yeah. On MTK, which is good. Are you going to go to New York? Not this time. I'll be at home this time, but uh, I'll be there in spirit supporting Tommy. Good man. Uh, but, yeah, so, uh, everyone's getting dates now in the gym, so it's uh, busy. We can all push each other and uh, keep picking up these wins. Look forward to it. You're listening to TKO, together with 32 Red. OK, so we're here at the TC Academy, session done and dusted. That's yours. Is it your third one? Third day, fifth session. So what did you have yesterday, VO2 max test? VO2 max. Just for then, people who don't know, just tell me what that is. Yeah, so um, VO2 max testing is just pretty much testing your lung capacity. and, and how, I think I'm right. You might be able to explain it better than me, but <laughs> I, how you transfer oxygen throughout your body. So you pretty much just run on a treadmill until exhaustion. They keep cranking the, cranking the gradient up, keep it at the same speed, but the gradient goes up. I've done that, I've done some muscle testing, I've done a resting metabolic rate test where I lie on a bed and pretty much go to sleep with a mask on and it can calculate the calories you're kind of burning. If you stay in bed all day, you would need this amount of calories to survive. And so, I often do, so that's good yeah, to know. So we need that, so then we correlate that and, and, relate, and relate back to the nutritionist and he kind of comes up with a diet plan for the next... Sort of 12 weeks before a fight. Sweet. So you're going to be boxing 126 pounds. <laughs> you're not quite 126 pounds yet. What What are you weighing? I'm not telling you. Well, OK, I'll tell you, and it's because I know. Um, can I tell them? Uh, <laughs> go on, tell them. Do you know what? Because it's the truth. Everyone lies about their weight. They like to say, oh, I'm lighter, oh, you know, I'm only this weight. Tell away. OK, so you're 151.8. Pounds. So we round that down to 150. Yeah, so you're about Canelo's sort of weight <laughs> three or four years ago. So roughly you'd need... How many pounds would you be over going into fight week? Seven or eight? Nah, like, more, more than that. More than that? Like 12. So basically, r- roughly speaking, you're looking at about two pounds per week to get you down to about sort of between eight and ten pounds over going into fight week. Which, when you break it down like that, doesn't sound... Well, it does to me. Does it? It sounds pretty difficult when you break it down like that, actually. But, um, <laughs> no, look, I'm always about this weight. Yeah. This is what I am coming... You know, the, what I was, I was probably... I'm two pounds heavier now than I was at the start of the last camp for Warrington, so I've had a longer break and stuff. But mm. it's it is what it is. You do it, you lose it. And uh, Ricky Hatton used to take off four stones, so I can take off two. Absolutely. Just under two, actually. Yeah, just under two. Round yeah. it down. OK, so what's your... What's your mental state going into this? Had a, had a long break, come off the back of your second ever career loss, a high-profile loss, 12-week camp ahead of you for, a, I, I suppose, what is ostensibly a tune-up fight for them, what you hope will be a world title fight mm. later down the line. So talk to me about how you're feeling about the next three months. I'm feeling good, confident. I'm excited to get back in the gym and just be around the boys again. It's been a long break for me, but I needed, I needed a bit of time out. I um, needed to decide what I was going to do. I came to the conclusion um, after a few weeks that I was going to continue to box on. Didn't want to go out on a fight like my last fight. I feel like I can still win a world title. Don't want to be one of these deluded guys that are saying that when they're 50 years old. But genuinely right now, I still feel like I can win a world title. I can still beat guys on a good day. Josh Warrington, Santa Cruz, Valdez. But I just need to perform. And uh, I think that I, I have that in me. So you are, I don't think it's any secret, looking at Oscar Valdez, hopefully through uh, the WBO route. Yeah. 
I think you're five wins from six Mexican opponents. You fought a lot of Mexicans. Yeah, yeah. Cazares, Irales, Gonzalez, Santa Cruz twice. Mm. Who's the other one? Don't know. Horatio uh, Garcia. Horatio Garcia. It's in my notes. Yeah. Um, so you obviously do well against that kind of style. Would it make sense for the opponent as a tune-up if you're looking at Valdez for the main fight at the end of the year or beginning of next? Would it make sense for that opponent to be well, like a does, fringe world-level Mexican? Of course, it does make sense. Um, I'm being honest with you here. At this point in time, we still haven't had an opponent mentioned, so I have no idea who the next opponent's going to be. So these next sort of first few weeks in camp are just going to be training and getting fit and getting a bit of weight off. And then once we get an opponent tied up, then I'll start to uh, think about him. As long as they get a shorter camp than you, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> no, that's not the way we're doing it. Just honestly, no, it's, it's kind of we're still waiting on um, things to be finalised with venues and dates and stuff. So once that's done, then we can we can speak to an opponent and get one sorted. Good man. You look very sharp today. I thought. How did you feel on the pads? I felt okay. I feel you know, I, I, like coming back from the the VO2 max test that you done yesterday. The results were surprising for me. They were a little bit better than they were. I was heavier, so I'm a bit fatter, according to the DAXA scan, which we do. And the um, genes, they're a good test. Yeah, yeah, and I'm carrying, I'm carrying a bit of fat, which is to be expected, but the VO2 max testing was surprising. It, it surprised me, it surprised the team at the MIP as well, and um, I was kind of a little bit ahead of where, where I am in terms of fitness for the start of the Warrington camp. Mm. Which, which is, is unexpected, but nice. It's unexpected, but it's nice, yeah. I think probably a wee bit of it, when you're on that machine, you're just running and going. You have a target, so I knew what the first target was and the first level I hit. So maybe a wee bit of grit and determination just to push out an extra, an extra level. I don't know, but I'm in half-decent shape. Good man. So, I mean, presumably, it's all relative because you're the least fit you're going to be in the next 12 weeks right now. And mm. you'll be getting a little bit fitter and a little bit fitter every day. But presumably with that, the, the volume and the intensity increases so the work gets a bit harder. Yeah. What tends to be the darkest and the hardest point in camp? How, how far in do you think? The first week is normally a little bit hard because you're, you know, you've been out of the ring, especially after a long break like mm. this and you have a few wee aches and pains and there's muscles that you haven't been using mm. in a long time. So the first week's pretty tough. I always think your last week of sparring is hard. So would, the last week of sparring for me would be two weeks out from a fight. And that's when you're bringing your calories down, you're bringing your weight down, you're mm-hmm. bringing your food down, but you're sparring high amount of rounds with numerous sparring partners sometimes. So I always think two weeks out from a fight is, and the first week are the, are the hardest weeks in camp. I think there's a consensus among a lot of boxers that it's the sparring that, that takes the most out of you long-term in your career, yeah. and too much sparring can, can kind of shorten the longevity of your career. Yeah. You, you subscribe to that, I know. Because... Oh, 100%. I used to spar a lot, way too much rounds. It was a, I, for the Quig fight, I sparred 220 rounds. And sometimes against big guys. You know, I used to spar a guy, Gary Corcoran, who you'll know. He's a late middleweight now. And so are you at the moment. Well, I know, I know. But it used to be... <laughs> this is when I was a super bantamweight as yeah, well. Yeah, right. So it was wars with big guys... He was welterweight at the time, and I used to always spar big guys. I think it has its place, but too much of it can be detrimental. Mm. And um, we're hitting probably less than half that, and I think that's good, though. And people may say, oh, well, look at your performance against Warrington, but I just got it wrong on the night, and the first two rounds surprised me and took a lot out of me. But after them first two rounds, they were hard, hard rounds Mm. to 
still be in the fight and come back and win a few rounds in the middle and still be standing at the end of 12, I think was a testament to everything I'd done in camp and, and, and to my fitness. Yeah, agreed. So roughly how many sessions are you doing per week and how are they broken up, sort of runs, strength and conditioning and okay. sparring and so stuff? So I would, I would, from start to finish, I still do 11 sessions per week. So Monday to Friday, two sessions per day and one session at the weekend, normally a Saturday. And I try and do it early so I have like a day and a half off before mm. I start on Monday again. But obviously I'm not going as hard <laughs> at this point as it would be mid-camp or towards the end of camp. But normally the morning session is punching of some sort, boxing, sparring, hitting the pads, hitting the bag, whatever. The other sessions would be a couple of weight sessions a week, a few runs. I'm doing kind of more long-distance steady stuff at, the, at this point to try and bring the weight down. Mm. Um, swimming a little bit, depending on how I'm feeling, and that's it really, but 11, 11 sessions a week. And when does sparring start? I've asked Jamie, and we spoke about this to Jamie, I want to start sparring a little bit earlier this time not because of anything that went wrong in the last camp and we did I'm not saying that we started sparring late or anything but I've been out of the ring a long time I just want to feel like what it's like to be a boxer again mm. and uh yeah so start you know like four rounds with lighter guys you know guys my own weight or, or below me um just move around you know I'm not a guy to take liberties and I just want to get my head moving mm. and stuff again so I'd like to start sparring we're going to New York next week for Tommy's fight. Yes, we are. And uh, I'd like to start pretty soon after, after I come back home. And then I guess once you've got an opponent fixed, the sparring partners and the sparring itself becomes a little bit more tailored. It's all tailored. You bring guys in to suit. So depending on who the opponent is, you'll, you'll try and get someone who can replicate them. Often I've brought in guys from Mexico and America. It's good to have foreign sparring partners, I think, mm. um, because you're paying them to come over and they just do what they're told. So if you want to spar this day, they have to be there to spar you because they're getting paid mm. or they don't get paid. I suppose fights at this level with, with what you're getting paid, you can actually justify the, the spend. Can't yeah, you? I've always done it. I've done it for a long time. At the start of my career, we used to travel for sparring, and, but now I've brought in a few Mexicans before, I brought in a few Americans as well. Mm. Um, a couple of good Spanish guys as well I've had in, lightweights. And yeah, that's what I do. Yvonne Mendy I've had as well, who beat Luke Campbell, I've had him in for oh, sparring. Oh, you have him in Yeah, yeah. But that was so a hard that, day, that was it? tough, 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 tough sparring. A guy called John Fernandez, who's a super featherweight Spanish guy, but very, very good. Had Horatio Garcia in for sparring as well. Who I fought, yeah. Well, after you fought him? No, before, before. I fought him. And that's why I picked him because the sparring was easy, <laughs> 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 but the fight wasn't. No. Um, it was a different man on fight night. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, no, I get, I get quality sparring. Is 122 pounds completely out of the question? Yeah, right? it is now. Yeah. yeah, there was a few fights ago against Donar. When I went against Donar, I came in at like 124 and a half, mm. but I'd done it relatively easy. I remember thinking for the fight for Windsor Park, we were searching for an opponent and the top featherweights were all kind of tied up and stuff. And I, I spoke to MTK and said, look, if we can get me a shot, that's super bantamweight. As for a world title for yeah, Windsor, right. I'll do it. That was a year ago, and I couldn't do it now. Mate, fair play to him for going back down to 118 after boxing. Unreal. Yeah. I knew when, it, when I fought him that he, he wasn't a featherweight. No. You know what I mean? And you could see even on the scale, he was a little bit fleshy. I knew he could do 122 pretty comfortably. But to get down to 118, there was a wee question mark in my head. Is he going to be able to do it and be able to perform at that level? He's looked brilliant. He's looked ferocious again at bantamweight. Mm. I was speaking to him at the weekend. I actually went out and 
he's over at the Ram Burnett fight, and then he was at the, the Super Series with Taylor and Inoue. He says he could do 115, which is insane. That's bonkers. Insane. Once he breezes past Inoue, because that's obviously a soft touch in the final, maybe we'll <laughs> see him clean up at 115 as well. OK, you are listening to and watching TK. Round 16, first week of Carl's training camp ahead of his ring return in about 12 weeks' time. Uh, remember, you can find us on the usual channels. But now, though, here's Nick Bright and Graham Swan with news from something else coming up very soon on Joe. Hello and welcome to Swanee's Cricket Show, a brand new show from Joe with me, Nick Bright, and the man himself, Graham Swan. Now, as the name suggests, this is a cricket show. So, Swanee, what are we going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about everything to do with the game, the biggest names from the biggest games. We've got World Cup, we've got Ashes, we've got Inside Scoops. Most importantly, we've got gossip. I'm dishing the dirt. I'm going to throw my old teammates under the bus. Oh, I'm already excited. (laughs) Remember, we're coming to you every single week, so subscribe to Swanee's Cricket Show wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers, lads. Best of luck with the show. Uh, Welcome back to TKO Round 16. We're at TC Academy here in Hull, and Jamie Moore is now joining us. How you doing, Jamie? I'm all right, mate. Yeah, you? Good man. I'm all right. All right, starting to get busy again for you, Martin Murray, back in. I saw he's on the same night as Rocky as well. So those two back in. Tommy at the weekend. Yep. I guess you're, you're flying out, did you say Sunday or Monday? Sunday we go out, yeah. Okay, yeah. good. How's Tommy getting on? Good. He's flying at the minute. He's, uh, he's 29 now. He's, mm. he's a very experienced fighter. He's got a great opportunity here to, to gatecrash the world team, which, um, you know, looking back over his career, he's had a couple of setbacks and you'd have never in a million years imagined... He'd have got to this stage and he's just, he's just been through hard work and, and perseverance. Mm. And the man to your right, obviously now, made the decision to get back in the ring. You've got a kind of a plan for the next six to 12 months. You as a trainer, I remember reading sort of late 2017, you were thinking of calling it a day when Tommy retired. What was it that was making you feel like that at the time and then what was it that changed for you? I never had a plan to train people, to be honest. That was never my goal <laughs> or ambition. It was just the fact that Steve Wood had asked me to help Tommy out when he had no trainer. I was only 32 at the time. And it was basically, I was doing it as a favour to help him out. It wasn't that I had any ambitions of being a trainer. And then it just sort of carried on from there. And I had little spats in between where I went and trained Matthew Macklin for a few fights. You know, there's been a few people in and out, but basically I've just trained Tommy. And my late coach, Oliver Harrison, who's recently passed away, when he very first got poorly a couple of years ago, Nobody knew about it at all. Only me and Martin knew. And me and Oliver had a conversation and he asked me if I'd look after Martin and Rocky for him while he was getting better. So I said, of course I will, yeah. So I started to look after them for sort of five or six weeks and it was during that period of time. So I dropped doing some personal training just to accommodate that. It was when Carl rang me. So it it all sort of worked in a weird sort of way and... As it turned out, Oliver never really recovered enough to be able to take back over the, the training full-time. So I just said, I'll do it. And, uh, and we had our little deal where I, I, I looked after him. And it was just one of the things, you know, Oliver's been like a dad to me, really. As we, we went through so much together as a, as a team. When I started out with Oliver, there was just me and him in the gym. Nobody else in there. So you can imagine the amount of time I got to spend with him and the knowledge I saw soaked in. So... I owe him a lot and uh, I wouldn't be a sire today without a doubt if it wasn't for his influence. And uh, as it turned out, it was was because of him again, as it turned out in a different sort of way that I've ended up in this position. Mm. And I guess you get to pass on 
the legacy that is his knowledge and wisdom of the sport through the, the fighters that you got, Carl, Martin, Rocky, and all of the sort of new lads coming through, like we saw Jack Catterall, Sean McGoldrick earlier. That must be quite a privilege for you to know that his name can live on through hopefully some great results for you guys in the future there's, as well. There's no greater testament to somebody than taking on board everything they've taught you and being able to pass that on to somebody else, keeping his legacy alive. You know, Oliver was a very quiet, personal man and he didn't want people invading his privacy. He didn't really want to be centre of attention, didn't want the limelight. He, he would rather the light be shone on the fighters. And he's getting the respect he deserved as a trainer now, afterwards, because people respected that of him. They, they understood that he didn't want to... He didn't want people sort of overstepping the mark in, in certain ways. And now he's not here to, to sort of get in that way or, or stop him from doing that. He's getting the respect he deserves. And I've been proud to read the outpouring of respect he's had off people mm. in boxing. You know, there's, there's no greater reward for someone than to be respected by his peers, and that's mm. what he deserved. Absolutely. So all, it falls on you now, the responsibility of, of all the lads in, in the gym. Plans for Carl over the next 12 weeks. We've just had a little chat about kind of shifting that, that weight I guess, in, in the early portion of the camp. How do you structure the camp? Do you kind of say, right, he needs to be able to do this much work and be at this kind of weight by, say, week 10 or 11, and then do you sort of work backwards? How, how do you plan it all for him? Yeah, it generally works in a sort of three-stage. You'll come into camp 12 weeks out and he'll, he'll work quite a bit on his weight, get, get the, uh, an amount of weight shifted, you know, base fitness, he'll get his general fitness up, by the time at the end of that period, you should usually have an opponent by then. So I'll have already sat down and looked at him and worked on tactics and stuff. Then we can start to drill those tactics over the next sort of period where you sort of fine-tune it and then you start to have a, a real set stage and goal. So you sort of, you know, by this stage, you need to be up to six solid rounds, then eight and then ten, and then progressing on to 12. So, and then the last third of it is, is really the sharpening up process, the tidying things up, uh, making sure that the game plans, the, the little set manoeuvres, what we've had in place, are all working. You know, by that last third period, I'd like, you know, ideally, they're doing it by second nature. As soon as I sort of have these little trigger words or keywords and they're all sort of sunk in there. So by that last third, they're all doing it by second nature. How's that process work then? So you'll obviously get offered up a, a list of opponents or do you, do you kind of scout people between no. you that you might want to fight? How does that process work? See, to work? be honest, I, I stay out of it. I don't go and, and fire names to my team or, or anyone. I get given a name and normally just say yes. Do you not have a look? Do you look on... No, I don't, I don't really care. I think that they, that's their job and they know what they're doing, these people, so I'm happy to fight anyone. I wouldn't take much to do that. Even the, the Horatio Garcia fight... The opponents that were offered to me first, because it was a you know a change of trainer and and stuff, I said that's the only time I've ever done it. I think said no to the first opponents and chose Garcia because the first opponents I don't think their the records weren't that good. I don't think they were they weren't as good as as Garcia, and I wanted something a bit stiffer, even though you knew I'd, I'd sparred him and stuff, and I knew what he was like, but I didn't really know what he was like because he was a lot better <laughs> on the night. But um, yeah, that was the only time I've ever done that. So whoever gets offered to me, I'll fight them. It'll be up to this man to, to probably. I, I, say I have yeah conversations. So so basically, my job as a trainer is is a little bit like a manager. I have a lot of conversations. I, I work with Steve Wood and MTK. Basically, that's it because I trust them. They know what they're doing. They're very good at the jobs. You know. So for instance, when when Carl's looking to get matched. 
someone from MTK will, will be on the phone and say, we're looking at this guy, this guy, this guy, what do you think? And we'll, and we'll have those conversations. It, usually within a couple of weeks, we've, we've got it down to a couple of names and it's a different situation with Carr because he's at that sort of level where, and the stage of his career now, so, so we have to navigate in the right sort of way, the mm. right fight at the right time. I mean, you look at Nino Denaire. Now, as time goes on, that win's going to look a lot better. You know, at the time, some people was questioning sort of, you know, why take that fight? He, he's a, he, maybe he's a little bit past it, but also he's a very dangerous puncher. So yeah. coming off the back of the Garcia fight, where he was a tough fight, he won the fight, but it was a close fight, um, tougher than we'd have wanted as our first fight. But you know, going straight in with someone like Donair, so I knew the qualities of Carl would be able to overcome it, but he'd have to be cautious and switched on. I knew he'd respect his power. That's why he, he didn't allow himself to fall into those pockets where he would put himself into danger. So those are the sort of best opponents at this stage for Carl because it makes him doubly aware. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't switch off. He doesn't. It's all right saying, oh, you know, you've got to be professional about it and you always train hard. But I've been a fight myself. I know what it's like. Sometimes when you've got that fear factor. You don't need motivating on the bag. You don't need someone to stand there and say to you, come yeah. on now, dig in. You do it by you do it but naturally because there's that little bit of fear in you. See someone like Denar, I can take huge I think a lot of fighters can at, at my at similar sort of stage of their career, like huge inspiration from them because I'm thirty two now and people are saying I'm over the hill. Denar's thirty six and he was over the hill, but now he's potentially could win the Super Series. Crazy, isn't it? It's, it's amazing what he's doing. And he just doesn't care. He just he knows he wants to fight because he's enjoying it, and he knows he's still got it. That's kind of similar to me. Um, but Bernard Hopkins was 40, getting, yeah. getting over the hill for yeah. 10 years. Yeah, and he never quite, you know, and, never and, quite and got you'd, there. You'd always, you're, you're one fight away from being over the hill, clusters over the hill to some people, and then you're one fight away from being, you know, having an Indian summer and having yeah. a rejuvenation in your career. Boxing fans are great and fickle at the same time. Mm. They love you when you're on top and they, they kick you when you're down. And listen, that's just the nature of the sport. It's the way it is. We were just talking before the break about the type of opponent, given that the, the main plan that's been spoken about, the main opponent that's been spoken about is Oscar Valdez. You've got a good record against Mexicans. It would make sense, wouldn't it, with, with options to look at someone that's stylistically similar. You know, you wouldn't want to box someone, a rangy southpaw, if you're going to go in against a, a come-forward orthodox fighter in hopefully eight to ten months' time. So I guess that comes into to play as well. These are all the things what you look at when you're looking to match a fighter. And like I say, Carl's in a great position where marketability-wise, he's always going to be up there. So we can afford to sort of look at different sort, sorts of opponents. Now, I've always said to Carl, Valdez, I like the Valdez fight for him. I think it suits him style-wise. The old cliche, styles make fights in boxing. Yeah. It, it's true. You can't get away from the fact that styles do make fights. And it's not an easy fight by any stretch of the imagination. But I just feel like Carl's got all the attributes necessary to beat somebody like Valdez. Mm. So you go into a Valdez fight as well, fearing his power, whereas I didn't do that against Warrington. And it kind of was detrimental to me, obviously. The first two, I thought, nah, he's going to be physically strong, it's going to be fit, it's going to be a hard fight, but he's not going to be able to hurt me. And I got that wrong. Against Valdez, I know he could switch her lights out in a second, so he'll be on it from start to finish, and, and he'll be see, aware see, of it. See, and that proves my point, what I've just been saying about 
that fear factor where you know you, you don't need that motivation. So I'd said to Carl a few times, and in, in in the lead up, listen, don't think you can't. You have to respect him, and even if you win this fight by twelve rounds, at the end of it, you're going to be exhausted. It's going to be that sort of fight. But in the back of his mind, obviously, he didn't really have that respect for him. So sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. You're just in that mindset. You have you either respect someone or you don't. Now I've no doubt that if he boxed. Warrington again, his mindset will be so yeah. different. Mm. The thing was, I respected him. I, res- I knew it was going to be a physical fight. Didn't respect his power. Yeah. Where's his suggestion before that he's a puncher? And mm. you look at his record, doesn't suggest he's a puncher, no. you know what I mean? No. But I've never been hit that hard in my life. And also, where you sort of get lulled into a false sense of security is um, Lee Selby. Everybody was going, ah, he only did that because he was dead. Because he was drained, yeah. yeah. So you did get lulled in a bit. I, I was guilty of it myself to a certain extent, even though I had a lot of respect for Josh because I've known him for a long time mm. and I know he's a good fighter. But it's just one of them things. Now, going into a Valdez fight, in a weird sort of way, it could work in our favour that he lost to Josh Warrington because he won't then make the mistakes that he made against Josh, against Valdez. Yeah. He might not have made him anyway because he would have respected his power, but he certainly won't make him again. There are a number of like quite highly ranked fighters across all four governing bodies. Mm. Shakur Stevenson's one, and know he'll be kind of championing it a bit for a shot. But it seems to be almost like a foregone conclusion that if you win this sort of tune-up fight, that you'll automatically get in the ring with Valdez. Obviously, both top-ranked fighters. Why do you think it's just assumed that that fight's going to be made? Does it feel like it's a foregone to you? If I blow on smoke, I feel like I deserve it. I, you know, I've been a unified champion. I've moved up and won a, a, a title in a second division against a future Hall of Famer. I've beaten another future Hall of Famer in the Nato Denaire, who's now had this amazing comeback. I deserve it, and that's, that's the bottom line. I know I lost to Josh Wine, I got it wrong on the night, but um, there's lesser guys get world title shots than me that don't maybe deserve it. I absolutely feel like I deserve a world title shot. Because you've got nothing really to prove to the public in terms of the accolades that you've won. Like your, your CV and your legacy is kind of cemented. But yeah. Do you feel at this stage of your career, given the, the loss against Warrington, that this is now... You've got something different to prove to the public and to yourself. And does that, does that make this mean a little bit more to you? Absolutely. Look, at people, people think you're done. You're overheld. People Warrington, oh, you're on the scrap heap, you're shit. It's, it's over. Hang them up. And you get it all the time. You get it all the time on social media. But... Doesn't matter. Like I, I genuinely believe I can, I can do it. And their opinions don't really. No one's opinion matters as long as I go out and do it. But I want to prove people wrong. Like I want to kind of stick my fingers up and say, "Told you, I know I can do it. I genuinely know I can do it." And I don't think I'd be continuing on if I didn't believe I could win a world title. I don't want to be going in against these people and getting beat again, or fighting for lesser titles. I want to win a proper world title. And I know I can do it. That's it. Bottom line. Last word to you, Jay. Also, when when you, to answer the question about why why he would get a world title shot in front of some other people, number one is an established name. He's achieved so much. Number two, they'll probably think he's getting to the point where he's over the hill. So they're more likely to take that risk. Number three, without blowing smoke, he's Carl Frampton. He brings a lot to the table financially. So world champions are going to be willing to take that risk to box him. You know, Shakur Stevenson is a very good fighter and he's, he's a risky... Um, you know, if you're going to give him a, a, a voluntary world title defence, it's a risky one, but what are the rewards from it? Whereas, to give Carl a, a, a shot, all right, it's, a risky, as, it's risky as well, but the financial rewards for fighting Carl are massive, so that's why they take that risk. So you feel ready to go then, ready for another 12-week camp? 
Born ready. I feel ready. I feel, I do feel ready. I'm looking forward to it. Like yeah. I'm excited about getting a camp, getting an opponent, getting a fight in the States and getting back to the big time. Good man. Well, thanks for talking to us, Jamie. Thanks for your time as well. No problem. Uh, thank you at home for watching round 16 of TKO Done and Dusted here in Hull. We will be in New York next week. Tommy Coyle's on the undercard of Anthony Joshua versus Andy Ruiz. We'll be picking up a few interviews there and you'll be seeing them over the coming weeks as well as a fight preview in about seven days' time. Remember to check out other, other episodes as well. Josh Bawatsi, David Hay, Chris Eubanks Sr. and many more on Joe's TKO on YouTube. And we will see you again in seven days' time from The Big Apple. You've been listening to TKO on Joe. Together with 32 Red.